Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're continuing our series through this uh, incredible letter of Paul, where he uh, is so vulnerable, so transparent. Uh, there are people in Corinth at the time that are opposed to his authority. They are arguing against his teaching. They are attacking the gospel. But as painful, uh, they're also attacking Paul. You know, we need to realize that these people who were apostles, they were sinners just like us. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus himself, who was sinless in my devotions this week, uh, I was reading in the Gospels where uh, his brothers, uh, James and Jude for sure, and perhaps some others, were um, mocking him, saying, hey, you want to be so public and be such a hero, go up to Jerusalem to the feast. And I wrote down in my journal, Jesus, what did you feel? Look, just because Jesus was sinless, don't think he didn't feel. You know, and in the garden, you know, he said, Peter, James, and John, he pleaded with them. He said, please, guys, I need you. So, so Jesus needed people. We need people particularly more because we're broken. And when the people in Corinth, some of them were attacking Paul, don't picture Paul as some super saint that wasn't hurt by people. This troubled him. And, and he wrote the letter. And he's really vulnerable. And he defends his apostleship. He defends the authority of the gospel that he's preaching. And it seems as though they were attacking him outwardly. He was weak in presence. He wasn't very uh, confident looking. And so Paul writes Second Corinthians 5 uh, to sort of... I don't know, in a godly way, I guess, fight back. And, uh, but for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's glory, not for himself as much. So to get us thinking about the theme this morning, the theme this morning is we walk by faith and not by sight. Strength and weakness is the theme of the letter. Today is strength in weakness through faith. Paul's opponents were attacking his outward appearance and Paul appeals to what we as Christians must appeal to constantly, that we are a people who walk by faith and not by sight. I mentioned earlier uh, that our oldest and his wife have adopted three young children, and they're starting to do what we did with our three uh, biological children. Um, they're making long trips to see uh, uh, other family members around the nation. And uh, when, when our kids were younger, uh, but old enough to look at license plates and read, uh, we would play the license plate game, right? Where you would try to find the alphabet through all the license plates on the highway. And then when they got a little bit older, we would sometimes play uh, a game where not only do you, new, do you need to find the license plates from various states, but you also need to come up with the slogan that is on that state's license plate. So there is a point to this, I promise. To get us ready for the passage on walking by faith and not by sight, I'm going to give you a license plate slogan, and you all need to give me the state. Now, this is participative here. Okay, This isn't rhetorical. I really want you to shout it out. I'm going to start with a softball. Heart of Dixie. Hey, we got it right. All right, this one's fairly easy as well. Land of Lincoln. No, Illinois. Thank you for playing. 
I love that it was Sue. I love that it was Sue. That is so great. What's it like to be called out there, Sue? <laughs> okay, 10,000 lakes. Minnesota, very good. Uh, America's Dairyland. Wisconsin, great. First in flight. North Carolina, Wright Brothers. This is a great one. I didn't know this one, but if you think about it, it makes sense. Great faces, great places. South Dakota. South Dakota, yeah, Mount Rushmore. Great, great theme. Great faces, great places. The first state. Delaware. Now, why in the world is the first state? I didn't know that. I figured Pennsylvania, my old stomping grounds, would be the first state. But Delaware was the first state to ratify the United States Constitution. So they were the first state. I never knew that before. Last one. The show me state. Missouri. That's right. Or as they say up there, Missouri. Now, it's well known that the disciple Thomas was a Missourian. Right? Unless I see with my eyes, unless I put my hand in his side, unless I see the nail scars, I simply will not believe. The whole show me state idea is almost akin to the seeing is believing. Now, the show me state might be fine for Missouri, but it's terrible for the church. We're not called to walk by sight. We are called to walk by faith. And Paul calls us to trust this morning and renew our trust this morning in things we can't be shown, in things we don't see. Paul's being attacked for what people see, and Paul turns it on its head and said, well, wait a minute, that doesn't matter because we're a people who believe in what we don't see. And so that's the theme. So there's going to be four realities this morning that we're going to find in the passage where we're called to walk by faith and not by sight in order to experience the power of the risen Christ. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. And may God give us the grace that our hearts would show the same posture of respect that our, that our hearts would show the same posture of respect that our postures are showing. Second Corinthians 5 verses 6 to 21, this is God's word. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, that is, while we walk this earth, while we're in this flesh, and the externals is what the false teachers and uh, other people were so concerned about, while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, we'd rather be out of these temporary tents that we're in, be with the Lord at death, or He comes back, and then at the great resurrection, we get our bodies back in a glorified fashion. So, whether we are at home, in the flesh right now, or away, away from Christ, or away from our home, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. Because again, God doesn't just look at outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. And I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us 
so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. That's a subtle jab, or not so subtle, at the false teachers. For if we are beside ourselves, <laughs> the false teachers were accusing Paul of being out of his mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him or for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't make judgments based on outward appearance. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul himself missed the Savior. Paul himself tried to destroy the church. No longer does he see according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I could stop now, just having read the text. But you guys pay me to preach, so uh, I'm going to go ahead. Now, this is God's Word. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. This is God's Word, and He gave it to us because He loves us. And He wants us to understand more of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone in the flesh to embrace what we know is not true. That phrase that seeing is believing. And Jesus, those incredible words, even graciously spoken to Thomas in rebuke. You believe because you see? Blessed are those who do not see, yet believe. God, may that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So four realities that we're called to embrace in this passage that lead us to fresh experiences of Christ. First of all, walk by faith, not by sight, in the reality of a new creation. I mean, Paul uses these very words. Look at verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he, she, children, they are new creations. Now, this is so important we understand this. A reality has changed for those who have put their trust in Christ. I was born August 30th, 1959. I didn't come to Christ until January of 1980. So for 20-some years, I was born, and then on one day, I was born again, and I was radically changed. Now, 
my outward appearance didn't change. I still looked like Bob Flayhart. I still was Bob Flayhart. But I was also a brand new creation. God did something wondrous and real and supernatural. And anyone who has trusted in Christ has been made into a new creation. Just like Genesis 1 and 2, where God took this formless and void, whatever it was, nothing. It was nothing is what the church fathers tell us. It was, it was ex nihilo. Uh, it tells us in Hebrews 11. Out of nothing, God created the world so that what was made was made from that which was not made. Figure that out. God simply spoke, boom, and there was matter, space, the creation of time. Well, that's how God makes us into new creations. He simply speaks by the power of His Word. And where there was nothing but a dead person, He brings resurrection. God talks about this in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will move you to keep my commands. God takes out this old heart, this old nature that is in rebellion against God. And he replaces it with a new heart. See, this is why you have to be born again before you can trust in Christ. Because the old heart doesn't want to trust in Christ by nature. And so God makes a new creation first. And then the first free, delightful act of the new creation is to embrace Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. Now, what does it mean to be a new creation? It means you have, and I have, new abilities, new capacities that we did not have when we were simply born physically. When we're born physically, we are born sinners. We are incapable and unwilling to trust God or to follow His will. But God gives us a new heart, and as new creations, folks, we can say yes to righteousness. We can. We can say no to sin. We can. We are now responsible as well as responsible. So in your marriages, if you're struggling, you can love your spouse. We can no longer say, I can't. We're new creations. We can. We, we no longer need to say the devil made me do it. The devil can't make us do it. We're new creations. We have a new capacity, a new power, a new nature. We have new hearts and a new spirit. We can say no to besetting sin. We can say yes to righteousness. Because God has made it so. Again, verse 17, the old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God. Look, you don't behave your way into a new creation. 
you believe it's happened. That's so important. You think, well, I don't feel it, Bob. That's the whole point. You may not feel it. It doesn't matter. It's true because it's a promise of God, not because you feel it. We're we're so used to, in our culture, to trust our own subjective experience. And the first element of following up on your new nature is to refuse to gauge what is objectively true by what you subjectively feel. Folks, that is so important in our day and age. Refuse to base what is objectively true on what you subjectively feel. Feelings can be changed. Thoughts can be changed. Desires can be changed. Choices can be changed. And it can be changed because we walk by faith in the reality of a new creation. Look, God doesn't get out the AED things and shock our hearts back to life. No, we're dead. Christ resurrects us. And because we're resurrected, we can live a new life. Walk by faith in the reality of a new creation. Secondly, walk by faith, not by sight, in the reality of a new standing. Not only do we have a new nature, not only do we have a new heart, we have a new standing, we have a new identity, we have a new position before the Creator God of the universe. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Again, I understand these realities are so hard to grasp, but we need to base them on faith. We are born sinners. We are born guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. We are born polluted by Adam and Eve's sin. And everybody that uh, is born into this world, conceived by ordinary human generation, is born under God's wrath and curse. Now, if you say, well, that just sounds too harsh. Well, you've just taken the good away from the good news then. See, it's only as good news in the gospel as the bad news of the reality of who we're born and conceived as. See, the gospel has no joy if, in fact, God isn't a holy, righteous, majestic God. God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And that's why the good news is so good. If we understand that God is holy and we're born under God's wrath and curse because of our sin, not only inherited sin from Adam and Eve, but our actual sins that we personally commit as we grow older, then being free from that wrath, exchanging hostility for friendship, now really is good news. I I actually think that so many Christians are lacking joy because we really don't believe God's a holy, wrathful, righteous, majestic God. And so Christianity for most of us, I shouldn't say most, some of us, has, has become simply, uh, I don't know, an adoptive belief system that is primarily about behaviors. Well, no wonder it's not really that good news. No, you were dead. You lived under the very wrath of God. He was angry with you every moment of every day, and his heart despised you. And then he sent Christ, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, do you realize what that's saying? It's not merely saying that Christ took on himself my sin, your sin. The text says, God made him who knew no sin to actually be sin. That's, that's called imputation. Sin was credited to Christ. Sin was imputed to Christ. And when sin was imputed to Christ, the sinless one, he became sin. And all of the wrath and all of the anger and all of the hostility that our sin and sinfulness deserves was poured out to the full, to the last drop upon Christ. And then it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God takes us as enemies and he makes us friends. That's reconciliation. He does that by not counting our trespasses through forgiveness, which he does by making Christ sin and therefore pours out all of his anger and wrath and displeasure on Jesus. But Jesus was born, actually conceived, sinless. This is why Christmas is so important. If you take away the virgin birth, there is no Christian faith. None. Zip. Zero. Conceived without sin, protected from the guilt and pollution of Adam's sin, lived a perfect life, obeyed God, loved God, loved his neighbor at every turn, lived righteously, And in the great exchange, Christ becomes sin and we are imputed his righteousness. That's the doctrine of double imputation. Now, theologians talk about that, but the person in the pew better understand it. This isn't, you know, high theology. This is the gospel at its basic roots. If you don't understand and trust and believe, walk by faith and not by sight, that your sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was imputed to you, then you don't understand salvation. And part of the reason you may be struggling in your Christian life is because there's no joy because you don't understand what salvation really is. (laughs) Salvation is, is we who are dead and under wrath are forgiven. And Christ took all of God's wrath on him because he became sin. And that would be glorious enough, right? That would be glorious enough. But then God goes one step further and he says, not only am I forgiving you, I am giving you the standing as if you had never even been a sinner. And I'm giving you the position and the identity that you've never sinned. Not only that, that would be great. God goes even further. Not only am I going to not not only am I going to treat you as if you've never sinned. I'm actually going to treat you as if you've done everything right. You think, well, that's too good to be true. Exactly. That's the whole point. It is too good to be true, except for it's true, because we walk by faith and not by sight. Think, well, I don't feel righteous. No, I get it. Neither do I. But that doesn't change the reality that God tells me he's given me a position of righteousness. I don't feel like I've never sinned. I feel like I sin every day a thousand times. I do. Look, God is decreeing something to be so. And we are to believe that it is so. As a matter of fact, 
the power of the Spirit is most present when we believe the gospel when we least think we deserve to believe the gospel. Did you hear that? The power of the Spirit falls upon our lives when we believe the gospel, when we very least think we deserve to believe the gospel. Like it's still true, even though it doesn't deserve to be true. So, walk by faith in the reality of a new creation. Walk by faith in the reality of a new standing. Thirdly, walk by faith in the reality of a new purpose. This is pretty simple here. Verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for God, for Christ. See, a change in nature and a change in position and identity leads to a change in purpose. We live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, we live redemptively. We live seeking to bring the reconciling grace of God to bear on every arena of life. So, so not just proclaiming Christ to people, which clearly we're supposed to do. By the way, you realize there is no plan B here? Uh, Paul clearly says in verses 18 and 19 that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that he's entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. That means there's no plan B, people. God's only plan for the world is that we as his church recognize that we're ambassadors. And, And here's an amazing walking by faith and not by sight. Paul says that, verse 20, God making his appeal through us. Think about that. When you're talking to someone about the gospel, it's you, but it's God. The God of the universe, when you talk about Jesus, is actually making his appeal through you. You think, well, it doesn't feel that way. I No, it doesn't. That's the whole point. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And we walk by faith and not by sight. We recognize that when we talk about Jesus, God himself, the creator God, not some mini God, the creator God of the universe by the Holy Spirit is actually speaking through us. We are ambassadors. Do you now understand why missions is so important? Look, so some of us have, have been sold a bill of goods, like God has a different plan for certain people. That, that sounds, you know, all culturally relevant and stuff. You've just taken the heart out of missions if you think God has a plan B. Look, in Romans, Paul writes, how can they believe without hearing? And how can they ever hear unless someone sent? The reality of our purpose is that if we don't do the job, God's absolutely sovereign. You know I believe that. I'm I'm Presbyterian. But we cannot buy into this fatalism. 
We, we can't buy into what I call hyper-Calvinism, you know, taking John Calvin to an extreme. We're responsible, we're responsible, and we're to bring the gospel to the world. And if we don't bring the gospel to the world, there is no plan B. That should break our hearts. There are places in the world that have yet to hear the gospel. And dear flock of God, they're lost. They're lost. They're under God's wrath and curse. Will we own that? And will we say, oh God, make my purpose more in line with the purposes of your kingdom? Look, I'm not saying that all of us need to stop being accountants and all be missionaries. I'm not saying that. Wherever we live, work, and play. What's our mission at Oak Mountain? Engaging every neighbor with the surprising power of grace. Over the fence, over the, you know, plexiglass, uh, over, over the mountain, overseas, over the pew. Wherever we go, we seek to reveal, reflect, and represent Jesus Christ. And that is our purpose. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been born again? You know, Paul is assuming that some of the people in Corinth have other people convinced they're Christians, and they're convinced that they're Christians, and Paul is saying they're not Christians. Now, obviously he doesn't know who that is, or he would make sure that he tackles them and tells them the gospel. But the assumption is, if he's saying to a church that he's writing a letter to, we implore you, be reconciled to God, that there may be people who aren't. Are you here this morning? Are you watching this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you transferred your trust from yourself and your own dead works to Jesus and his righteousness? Have you experienced the promise? Have you trusted the promise of double imputation that Jesus took your sin, took your wrath, and God credits you with his righteousness? Well, if you have, then you have not only become a new creation, you have a new purpose as well as a new standing. And then fourthly and finally, before we come to the table, and I need you to stick with me here. I know it's maybe getting time you want to check out. This is really key. We walk by faith in the reality of a new Jerusalem. We, we walk by faith in the reality of an eternal state. And this could get dicey, so stick with me. Look at verse 9. We make it our aim to please him to please Christ, because we will, though we're absent from him bodily and physically, we don't see him, there will come a time when we are with Jesus. And Paul says, in light of that, we make it our aim to please him. In other words, grace doesn't mean lack of effort. Grace simply means lack of earning, okay? So Paul is calling us, stick with me here now, who are already in Christ, pleasing in our persons to God. Do you realize that? That's another beauty of the gospel. If you know Christ, part of your new standing is that you are pleasing to God because of your union with Christ. God is pleased with you every day, just like he despises the wicked every day. God is pleased with you because of your union with Christ, and he expects you to get great joy happiness, peace from that. But because 
He wants us to be confident that we are pleasing positionally, that our identity is one of being pleasing to God. That frees us to look at areas of our lives that in and of themselves, compared to the Word of God, aren't pleasing to God. You with me? Your person is pleasing to God because of your union with Christ. But when you look at God's Word, there are words, deeds, attitudes that the Word of God says that doesn't please God. So knowing that we're pleasing in union with Christ enables us to be honest about those areas of our lives where compared to the rule of God's Scripture, we're not living lives pleasing to God. And as we repent of those areas and hope that all these gospel truths we've covered this morning, we hope afresh in, God says that's how we're changed, through repentance and faith. So we make it our aim to please Him. Then notice He reminds us again in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's not talking about judging people whether they're Christians or not. This is clearly written to Christians. We as the church must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're not going to be judged as to whether we're in Christ or not. If we're Christians, we're clearly in Christ. We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We're righteous. We'll be with Jesus forever. But what we've done in the body while we're on this earth will be assessed. Now, if you're a performance junkie like me, I'm like, no, listen. I don't need to fear judgment. But neither can I become lackadaisical and think that grace means it doesn't matter how I live. You think, well, Bob, that doesn't make any sense because there's heaven, there's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. So who's going to care if we didn't live the way we could have lived? Look, first of all, I don't have the answer to that question. But secondly, Jesus clearly talks about things like uh, you were faithful with uh, five minas, you'll rule over five cities in the New Jerusalem. Uh, you've been faithful with ten minas. You will rule over ten cities. But, but here's the thing. We will, in fact, be assessed on how we've lived and how well we've lived. Now, when we get to heaven and we see some person with ten cities because of how they've lived, first of all, that reward is only the reward of God's grace anyway. It's not like you've really earned it. But the fact is, our choices do matter. And when we see that person in heaven, since there's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, we'll actually honor God more as we see that they have ten cities and we don't have any. We won't experience regret or remorse, but we'll glorify God that somebody was that faithful. And Paul says, since it's going to be that way, how do you want to live your life? It's not a big whiteboard where, you know, wouldn't that be great? Some ways for a performance junkie like me, at the end of every day, there'd be a whiteboard and lay down how well I did. And, you know, now we walk by faith and not by sight. But we need to recognize grace has teeth. 
It's not cheap grace. And grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And there will be a day when our character and our ministry and our service will be assessed. And if it is to be as such, what kind of people ought we to be? Now here's the last thing I'll say. The one who does the assessment is the one who loves you more than you can ever dream being loved. And in verse 14, Paul says, it's that love that compels us, that motivates us, that inspires us. And yet, Paul also wants us to remember, we will be assessed. It'll be a gracious assessment. But please live in light of eternity. That's all, that's all Paul is saying. This life is not all there is. There is another life. And the beauty of the sacrament is it actually takes this stuff that we're to believe by faith and not by sight and actually begins to make it somewhat sight. The night in which Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. So what, what kindness of God take the, the invisible truths of the gospel and make it somewhat visible. Christ's body was broken. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that God wouldn't count our transgresses and break us forever in eternity. Then after supper, he took the cup and he says, the cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for remission of sins of many. The, the, the garnet, the red, the crimson, whatever you want to call it, enables us to see what the blood of Christ would look like. And it takes us for a moment out of merely walking by faith and not by sight and actually adding some sight to our faith that we might be encouraged. Now, we don't believe this is automatic blessing. We don't believe that this bread becomes the body of Christ or this fruit of the vine becomes the blood of Christ. But we do believe that by God's spirit and presence in this place right now, that as we partake of this supper by faith and repentance that those who are renewed become even more renewed. Renewing grace is poured out on our lives as we come to this table. Let me pray. Father, we know that these elements remain bread and the fruit of the vine, but we also know that you have promised great power through this sacrament, through these sacramental actions, as the Holy Spirit unites us even more firmly and strongly to Christ. And His resurrection life can course through our souls. And so God, please work in us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.